Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me now to the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. John chapter 4, we'll start in verse 27 through verse 42. John chapter, se- chapter 4, verse 27. There is a plant that is only grown in parts of Bolivia and Peru. It's called the Queen of the Andes. Now, this plant can grow to about 50 feet tall. And eventually, when it matures, it is covered with all of these beautiful white petals. But there's one problem. This plant only blooms 80 years after you plant it. So if you plant one today, you will be able to enjoy it sometime around the beginning of the 22nd century. The person who plants the Queen of the Andes does so knowing that it will be someone else who probably has not yet even been born Who will eventually see it come to fruition? Someone sows and someone else reaps the benefit. Sometimes that is how it works in the kingdom of God as well. Sometimes we sow the word of God. Sometimes we sow the seed of the gospel in the hearts and the lives of people, but we don't get to see the results of our labors. Sometimes we sow, but the harvest comes much later. But then, at other times, sometimes we get to reap where someone else sowed, Sometimes we get to be a part of a harvest that is the result of somebody else's labors. And in many parts of the world today, that is what we are seeing happening all over the world. It may not be evident all the time here in the United States, but there is this great spiritual harvest that is taking place. I don't think there's ever been a time where the harvest is greater than it is right now. Uh, The opportunities for missions and evangelism and kingdom growth are unprecedented. There are more open doors where the gospel is able to be preached in more places to more peoples than there's ever been before. And of course, right here where we live in South Florida, we see God bringing the nations to our doorstep. We can touch the entire world from right here in Homestead. What an exciting time. What an exciting place to be. And what an opportunity that God has given to us. The question is, what are we going to do with that opportunity? Last week, we began a story in John chapter 4 that we're going to finish studying this morning. But Jesus met a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. He asked her for water. He then used the water of that well as a tool to help her see the spiritual thirst that was inside of her and the inability of all of the wells of this world to satisfy her. 
he offered her living water. He said, if you drink of the water that I offer, you will never thirst again. And this woman came to see Jesus for who he really was. He said, I'm the source of that living water. And he pointed to himself as the Messiah, starting in verse 27. We're going to see that Jesus has now planted the seed in the heart of the Samaritan woman. She's going to take that seed and she's going to plant it into the hearts of the people of Sychar where she lives. By the time we get to the end of the story, we see this great spiritual harvest taking place. Now, how many of you believe what God did there, he can also do here? Anyone believe that? I certainly do. That's what I believe. That's what I want. The question is, if we're going to be a part of that harvest, how must we respond? We're going to see several things in our story this morning that must take place. First of all, we must have a passion for the harvest. We must have a passion for the harvest. Look at verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? I mentioned last Sunday about the different barriers that Jesus crossed when he reached out to the Samaritan woman. Let me remind you, the disciples at this point, they're still getting to know Jesus. And at this point, they're not yet accustomed to seeing women being treated with respect. That's a lesson that Jesus had to teach them and he's teaching them that lesson here in John chapter 4. Look at verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. It's very telling, and it's kind of poetic that this woman, upon realizing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Bible says she left her water pot and went to the city. Because remember, that well represents what she had been doing with her life, going to all the different wells of this world, seeking satisfaction. But now she leaves her water pot at the well because she realizes she doesn't need those waters anymore because she just found living water in Jesus. And it sounds as if when we read this, Jesus told her a lot of things that aren't explicitly mentioned in John chapter 4. She said, meet someone who told me everything I ever did. Jesus had knowledge about her that he could not have naturally had. He had a supernatural knowledge of her life. She correctly concluded that Jesus must be the Messiah. And the Bible says that she went into the city to go tell everyone there. Now remember, this is the same woman who would walk half a mile outside of town in the heat of day to draw water from Jacob's well so that she could avoid all of those people in town. But here she is rushing back into town so that she can tell everyone that she has met the Messiah. And she does not at this point have much theology 
She's got plenty of questions she cannot answer. She can't tell you where Cain found his wife or any of that stuff. All she knows is that she has had an encounter with Jesus. And you know what? It turns out when someone has had a real encounter with Jesus, they normally cannot keep it to themselves. And I want to focus for a moment on what Jesus said to his disciples after she left about this encounter. In verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? The disciples left Jesus at that well because he was just too tired to go into town with them. And now they come back, and it's like Jesus is a different person. When they left, he was tired, and now they returned. He's invigorated. When they left, he was hungry. Now he's satisfied. When they left, he was thirsty, and now he is refreshed. And meanwhile, the disciples are looking at each other, and they're all confused and asking one another, um, Jesus has his own food to eat? I mean, did somebody give Jesus a taco and we didn't know about it? I mean, what's happening here? Well, what's happening is Jesus is preparing them for this lesson that he wants to teach them that we see in verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to Finish his work. Jesus said that God's will and God's work are like food to him. The will of God and the work of God here refer to the harvest. The harvest of souls in Samaria, all of the people who needed to know Jesus. And even though when Jesus arrived, he was tired and he was hungry and he was thirsty, something happened. When he met this Samaritan woman, when he began to talk to her about living water, when he saw her spiritual eyes beginning to open, when he saw the first sparks of faith in her, and when he saw her finally understanding who he was, that he was the Messiah, when he saw uh, her response rushing into the city to tell everybody, all of a sudden that hunger that was in Jesus was replaced by this holy enthusiasm. And all of a sudden he's not thinking about food anymore because his passion for the harvest was actually greater than his hunger for food. Now, one of the marks of a healthy body is that it gets hungry, is that it craves food. Some of us crave food more than others, but that's a whole other story. But just as every healthy body craves food, likewise, one of the marks of spiritual health is that one craves this spiritual food, one hungers to be in God's will and to do God's work. And just like 
physical food gives strength to your physical body, there's a kind of spiritual energy and strength that comes from being in God's will and doing God's work. Now, some of you may feel a little bit famished this morning, and you don't know why. Maybe it's because you're depriving yourself of that spiritual food that you need in order to thrive. A fish out of water isn't going to be happy because it was made to swim. A bird in a cage usually isn't going to be happy because it was made to fly. And a believer who is not in God's will, who is not actively doing God's work, a Christian who is not a part of God's harvest is not going to be happy because we were made for this. I think about that great missionary, David Livingston, who for years preached the gospel in Africa. And one time he made this amazing statement. He said, I would rather be in God's will in the heart of Africa than be out of God's will on the throne of England. How about you? We are not Jesus, but the more and more we become like Jesus, just like Jesus, we will have a hunger for the things of God. We'll have a passion for the harvest that is, yes, even greater than our hunger for food. We must have a passion for the harvest. But then secondly, we also see we should see the urgency of the harvest. We should see the urgency of the harvest. Look at verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. In those days they had a saying, four months between sowing and reaping. Four months between sowing and reaping. When someone sowed the seed, they knew that, Lord willing, if everything went well, four months later, they could begin to see the harvest. But notice in John chapter 4, the Bible tells us it was about 12 noon when Jesus began to speak to the Samaritan woman. We don't know how long Jesus spoke to her. We don't know how long it took her to run back into town. We don't know how long she spent telling everybody about Jesus. But I think it's safe to say that several hours at least went by. Three hours, four hours, maybe five hours. Not months. But mere hours have passed. And Jesus said to the disciples, Look, he said, the harvest is ready. It's already white for harvest. I, I read that the fields of grain in that part of the world can have a literal whiteness to them when it is time for the harvest. If you could imagine seeing something like this, as far as the eye can see. I believe that when Jesus made that statement, when he said the fields are white for harvest, he may have seen something that was very similar to this. In Palestine, especially in those days, they wore white robes. They wore white coverings over their heads in order to deflect the rays of the sun and to repel 
the heat. And so you can imagine as these multitudes of Samaritans are leaving Sychar to find Jesus at Jacob's well. He's there with his disciples and he can see all of the people in their white robes and in their white head coverings and they're all coming his way. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus literally pointed to them and said, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, they are already white for harvest. In other words, this harvest, this spiritual harvest that Jesus is talking about, it doesn't follow the rules of nature. This harvest in the kingdom of God, it can come at any time. Look at verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Jesus said normally when someone is out there reaping the harvest, he gets his wages. He gets paid for it. In this case, though, according to Jesus, that's not the greatest reward. The greatest reward is seeing people saved. It's gathering fruit for eternal life. It's the knowledge of knowing that every time you plant the seed and someone responds by faith and someone believes that you are putting fruit in God's storehouse, fruit that will last forever. And notice that in this particular harvest, the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. Now, it seems like Jesus is referring to a passage in Amos chapter 9. I'm not going to read it this morning, but Years before, the Old Testament prophet Amos, he preached and prophesied, and he said that one day in the future, God will pour out his blessings on his people in such a way that the reaping will catch up to and will overlap the sowing. Try to imagine it this way. Imagine there's a farmer and he's got his field, and he plants his seed, and then he waits, and finally, it's time for the harvest, and man, it is a great, great harvest. And imagine, it turns out that this harvest is so great, and the land just keeps on producing so much so that they are still reaping the harvest when it should be time to start sowing once again. Can you even imagine something like that? Jesus appears to be saying to his disciples what Amos prophesied years ago you are seeing happen right now with your very eyes. He's saying, guys, this is it. It's here. The harvest is now. And he wants them to see the urgency. Now, if it was urgent for them to get to work and be a part of the harvest back then, how much more urgent is it now? When the world population just recently, a few weeks ago, passed 8 billion for the first time, every one a soul that will spend eternity in either heaven or hell, how much more urgent is it now? Not just because of the number of people, but how much more urgent is it knowing that Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The problem is never the size of the harvest. The problem is always 
the number of workers in the fields. Look at verse 37. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. One sows, Jesus said, one sows God's word. One sows the gospel by sharing the gospel with someone else. But then someone else comes along and they reap. They have the privilege of leading that person to the Lord. But notice, most of the time, Jesus said, the person who does the sowing and the person who does the reaping, they're actually two different people. But each role is just as important. That's his point. Both of these roles, that of sowing and reaping, are important. He continues this thought in verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Jesus said, there's this great big harvest in front of you, and you get to go be a part of it, but you are going to reap where somebody else did the sowing. Now, who is the somebody else? Of course, Jesus sowed the seed in the heart of that woman. She sowed the seed uh, in the people of that city. I think you could even go back and say every prophet that had preached was sowing seed. I think you could say John the Baptist sowed the seed. But you know what? This sowing of the seed doesn't stop here in John chapter 4. A few years later, if you read the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 8. There's this deacon named Philip. He was a deacon and he was a preacher. And the Bible says that he went to Samaria. And there in Samaria, there was this great work of God. There was a great revival. God did miraculous things. And left and right, people were being saved. That harvest took place because somebody had already sown the seeds before Philip got there. And I believe that you can say that the revival we see in Acts chapter 8 is the result of the sowing that took place in John chapter 4. I saw an example of this personally not too long ago. I was in Caibarian, Cuba last November. And while I was there, I had the opportunity of meeting a very bright, cheerful woman. This lady, I took this picture with my own phone. Her name is Ana Maria Magdonada. And when I took that picture, she was, don't let the hair fool you, 99 years old. And I, she was getting ready to celebrate a birthday. So I asked her, I said, ma'am, what do you want for your 100th birthday? You know what she said? She said, for my 100th birthday, I just want a quinceanera. <laughs> I don't know if she got one or not. I hope she did. If you don't know, that's the big celebration a girl has when she turns 15 years old, right? I hope she got her quinceanera. But Ana Maria began to share with me her testimony, and she told me about all the different people in her life who at different times over the years shared the gospel with her. And she said they just kept planting the seed and planting the seed and planting that seed in my heart. But it wasn't until recently when, praise the Lord, some of the missionaries that we support here at First Baptist Homestead that we pray for every week, some of those missionaries shared the gospel with her 
one more time. And this time, she heard it. And this time, she believed. And here she is last weekend at the age of 100 following the Lord in believer's baptism. Now, someone did the sowing. Someone else did the reaping. But Jesus said, the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. What Jesus said about Samaria is true about Homestead as well. I believe Jesus would say to us, lift up your eyes. See the fields. They're white for harvest. What do you see when you look at Homestead? What do you see when you look at South Florida? What do you see when you look at your neighborhood? Teachers, what do you see in your classroom? Do you see students or do you see fields that are white for harvest? If you work in the medical field, do you see patients or do you see fields that are white for harvest? If you own a business, do you see customers and clients or do you see fields that are white for harvest? If you are a student, do you merely see classmates or do you see fields that are white for harvest? What do you see? We should see the urgency of the harvest. That leads to one final thing in our text that I want to share with you. We can be sure of the success of the harvest. We can be sure of the success of the harvest. Look at verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. I told you last Sunday the Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They had their own temple on their own mountain and they were waiting for their own Messiah. Do you realize the fact that these Samaritans would embrace Jesus, a Jewish Messiah? Do you see what a miracle that was? This harvest was certainly successful. And likewise, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations. It will be preached to all peoples, and then the end will come. Revelation 7 says one day every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue will be represented around the throne. Yes, as urgent as this harvest is, we know that the harvest will be successful. And look at verse 42. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They called him the Christ and the Savior of the world. That last part, the Savior of the world. This is the first time in all of the Bible that anyone ever said that about Jesus. It's the first time anybody ever made that declaration about him. And I want you to notice 
we see this statement being made not by the priest, not by the scribes, not by the Pharisees or the Sadducees, not by anyone on the Sanhedrin, not by the religious authorities. No, it was the Samaritans making that statement. The rejects, they called him the Christ, the Savior of the world. There was a lot of stuff they still didn't know about Jesus. Jesus had not yet revealed his plans to die on the cross and rise again. But the very fact that they called him by this, the very fact that they said, the Christ, the Savior of the world, that statement reveals that they did understand certain things about Jesus. So what did these Samaritans understand about Jesus in John 4? They understood that he was the Messiah. They said he is the Christ. That's what Christ means. He's the chosen one. He's the one God promised. He's the one who fulfilled the scripture. They understood that Jesus came to save. He's the Savior, more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a good example. They understood that he's the only Savior. Notice they did not say he is a Savior for the world. They said he is the Savior, not of Israel, not of Samaria, but the Savior of the world, which tells us something else they understood about Jesus. They understood that the salvation he offers is for everyone. Anyone in the world can come and believe and be saved. All of that knowledge, all of that understanding is wrapped up in that statement that they made about Jesus. And when I think about what happened in Samaria in John chapter 4, there's another story that I'm reminded of, of something amazing that took place a number of years ago. Now, years ago, there was a pastor who was pretty well known in his time. Uh, most of us probably aren't familiar with him, but there was a pastor in London named Francis Dixon. He pastored a very large church. He was invited to preach all over the world. But one day, Francis Dixon was at his own church, and he was having a, a very normal conversation that pastors have. Somebody wanted to join the church. He said, tell me about your testimony. He wanted to know where he stood with the Lord. So the man said, oh, well, my testimony is I used to be a sailor, and I was in the Royal Navy. And while I was in the Royal Navy, I was stationed in Sydney, Australia for a time. And one day while I was living in Sydney, I was walking down George Street. And some guy, I didn't know, some stranger just walked up to me out of nowhere and said, excuse me, sir, excuse me, I have a question. Do you know where you would spend eternity if you died tonight? And he put a, a track in my hand. He said, please pray about it. God bless you. Have a nice day. That was it. He said that question, it just stayed in my heart. And then eventually when I was discharged and I came back home, I continued to think about that question. And I called a friend of mine who was a Christian and I told him about that man on George Street in Sydney, Australia. And that man shared with me how I could be saved and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Well, the pastor loved hearing that. Two weeks later, Two weeks later, he had the opportunity to preach himself in Australia, but he was on the other side 
of Australia. And he was in crusade meetings. After one of the meetings, they had an, an altar call. There was a woman who came forward. He was counseling her. And he asked her that same question. Where do you stand with the Lord? What's your story? And she said, oh, I've, I've been saved. My story is uh, I was in Sydney, Australia. And I was walking down George Street. There was some guy. I don't know who he was. Some guy came out of nowhere and said, excuse me, I have a question. Do you know where you would spend eternity if you died tonight? He put a little pamphlet in my hand and said, have a nice day. I read it later on that night. I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. That's my story. And this pastor thought, well, wow. I just heard the same testimony from two different people on two different continents who came to know Christ through the witness of the same man. He said, what are the odds of that? This guy later on preached, I believe, in Jamaica. And in Jamaica, in his sermon, he told the story about how he met these two different people from two different continents who both came to know Christ through the witness of the same man on George Street. And you know what happened? Somebody in the congregation said, me too. <laughs> he said, I was in the Navy and I was stationed in Sydney and I was walking down George Street and I met that man. He asked me that question and I wrestled with that question. Where am I going to spend eternity and eventually gave my life to Christ. Francis Dixon was invited to preach at a convention for, get this, Marine chaplains in Atlanta, Georgia. There were a thousand chaplains at this event. And he told this story. Four people came to him afterwards and said, Yep, we were stationed in Sydney, Australia. And while we were living in Sydney, one day we're walking down George Street. He asked us that question. We gave our lives to Christ. Now we are in the ministry. He preached one time in India and met somebody even in India who told him that same story of how he was on George Street. Well, years later, Decades later, he finally got invited to preach in Sydney. And you know what Francis Dixon said? I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> he said, I'm going to George Street, and I'm going to find this man who's asking all these people, do you know where you would spend eternity if you died? I'm going to find this guy. I don't care what it takes. So he gets to Sydney, and he asks this pastor, he said, hey, do you know... This guy, I don't even know his name, some guy on George Street who walks up and down and, and asks people this question. And the pastor said, yeah, of course I know him. You're talking about Frank Jenner. Yeah, for, for decades. He, he ministered over on George Street and he would ask people that question. But you're not going to find him there anymore because he's an elderly man now and he has Parkinson's disease and he's just not able to go out and witness like he used to. But Francis Dixon said, you know what? Tell me where he lives. Two days later, he went to his home and he had the opportunity to actually meet Frank Jenner, that George Street evangelist. And he said to him, sir, I want you to know that over the last couple of decades, I have been blessed to be able to preach all over the world. And in every part of the world, I have heard people say, I came to know Christ 
because I was stationed in Sydney, Australia, and I walked George Street, and some man asked me that question, and now they are followers of Jesus Christ. And Francis Dixon said that Frank Jenner began to weep because for 40 years he had been ministering. He said that was the first time anyone had told him that someone had been converted as a result of his efforts. Frank Jenner may not have known, but God knew. And all the people who had been touched, they knew And I tell you this story because it reminds us of a very important lesson that I want to leave you with. Don't get discouraged if you find yourself sowing and sowing and sowing the seed and you don't get to reap and you never see the harvest. Keep sowing. Keep being faithful. And always remember this. The seed is never wasted. The sowing is never in vain. And God's Word never returns void. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we get to be a part of that harvest. And we know that at some point we were the harvest. Someone shared the gospel with us. Someone gave us a Bible. Somebody prayed for us. Somebody brought us to church. And as a result of those efforts, because you used them, we now get to be a part of the kingdom of God. And now we get to sow and sometimes we get to reap. And so Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray that you'd help us to stay faithful and not get discouraged. Sometimes It's very easy for us to get discouraged when we sow and we sow and we sow the seed and we don't see the fruits that we long for. Help us to leave that to you. Help us to trust you with the results, knowing that you see and you know and you will make sure that your word doesn't return void. Father, I pray for those who perhaps are part of that harvest right now and that There's some man or some woman or some young person perhaps here, perhaps watching or listening right now online who in this moment, they cannot answer that question that Frank Jenner asked over and over again on George Street in Sydney, Australia. Do you know where you would spend eternity if you died tonight? And God, if there are any within the sound of my voice who really don't know the answer to that question, or if they do know and they know they would not be in heaven, that there's not been that born-again moment in their life. There's not been that time where they placed their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. God, I pray, I beg you, that you would knock on the door of their heart. That they would see just how serious their sin is, that sin separates us from you. But that Jesus, because He loved us, died for our sin, that He rose again. And now Your Word says... Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, if there's somebody here who needs to, for the very first time, call upon Jesus to save them, if someone needs to call upon Jesus and say, be Lord of my life today, God, I pray this would be that day, this would be that moment. 
Father, help us to take everything that we've read and heard and learned and apply it to our lives. God, help us to see the harvest that is all around us here today. And we will give you the thanks and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name.